Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that's gonna come You will never know Just what you've done Good evening and welcome to the Stop Child Abuse Now show. This is scan number 3125. That's 3125. Okay, before we go any further, if someone has their um, um, computer on, please turn it off, okay, because that interferes with the show. Just turn your speaker off, okay, if you can hear me. All right. Yeah, that that's better. That's good. Oops, not quite. Whoever had your um, speakers on or whatever, uh, maybe you can just turn that off, all right? Got a lot of click clicks going on and, and uh, weird sounds. Oh, honey, I, I need oh. you to turn your computer off. Yeah. Yeah, that's what's doing it. Yeah, I think it's better now. Okay, all right. Now we're ready to rock and roll. Yes, we are. Now we're um, ready. Now we're ready. We're good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Listen, everyone, we have a wonderful guest on tonight. Um, I'm proud to be able to run this show. I run every Friday night. And uh, But this one gave me chills. I don't get chills too often, all right? <laughs> I just don't. But, you know, um, I, I read his bio, and it's, it's really uh, – quite impressive and, and stunning, if you will. Um, I'm not going to tell his story. I don't believe in that. But um, right now I'm going to read the mission statement, and then we'll get back, okay, to to our guests. Um, we have a singleness of purpose at NASCA to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so two different ways. Number one is educating the public, especially as related to getting society over the taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting the facts that show child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. Number two, offering hope for healing to numerous pairs and providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Now, we have a little bit more problems here on, on, the, on the studio. So if anyone is, has their speakers on or whatever, please turn them off, okay? And if you're on the computer, you have to turn that off too, I guess, or whatever, because we don't want to ruin this show. Absolutely not. So, um, but anyway, um, yeah, 
one thing that we we do teach about here, you know, at uh, at NASCA, is for people, you know, to speak to other people about child abuse, and there's a reason for that. That's under prevention, all right. You have prevention, intervention, and recovery. And it's very important that we do speak about that because we the survivors, I don't care how many degrees you have, I don't care what schooling you have or don't have, it doesn't matter. If you don't walk in our, our shoe steps, okay, if you don't walk in our shoes, um, you're not going to have the same knowledge as a person who has their Ph.D., say. Book learning is good. Don't get me wrong. I have it too. A lot of us do. But to walk in those shoes, to walk in those shoes, we know about the feelings and the things that we do go through, okay, and that's what's so really, really important. So anyway, okay, so tonight we have a special guest. His name is Albert Grieve. He's from Missouri. He's a child abuse survivor who's an attorney today, so watch what you say. <laughs> I'm teasing. All right, with prior law enforcement experience, he's a former foster youth and a motivational speaker, and I'm not going to go on from there because he has a big bio here and I'm going to let him tell his story. So welcome Albert and once you tell your story, yeah, you're now a family member. That's what you are. You're a NASCA family member and you can come back anytime you want and you can be on the panel and uh, ask questions, okay? (laughs) I think that would be good. Yeah. All right, so why don't you start out by telling your story um, from your earliest uh, remembrance, say, of, of child abuse. And um, we do have quite a large panel here, and which I'm thankful for. I think it's great. And um, I always love it when guys come on because guys so often, you know, just don't talk enough about what happened to them. And uh, let me tell you something. You have the same feelings that we do, okay? So thank you so much for coming on. And start out by telling your earliest childhood memories, and we'll go from there. Go ahead. I appreciate that. With your permission, I'd actually like to echo something you said first, and that's that telling your story is is so beneficial. Um, I First off, I will share my story, and I talk about some difficult things, so if you're listening, please exercise some self-care. And I've always tried to make good come from my past, Um, But I've realized, especially as of recently, that without having mental health, I can't be the best dad or husband that is possible. Um, I have always done things with my kids to interact with them and play with them, but there are times when I'm drawn back into my childhood, into my past, this maelstrom of chaos and trauma that was my youth, and I'm not actually present with them in the moment. So. Just earlier today, I finally, at age 37, engaged in therapeutic services to try to really walk through my past. Because although I've used my past to try to make good, I've always redirected it. I've never really faced it. I've always been running from my past. So I'm trying to be more intentional now about dealing with my past and working through my trauma so I can become a better person, so I can help people better, and so that I can also um, be, be more present for my children than I am presently. But I grew up in Sacramento, California. It was a wonderful place except for the the place I was residing in. Uh, My father was an angry and abusive alcoholic. Uh, My mom was diagnosed with mental illness. Um, But she, as a child, had gone through sexual abuse and trauma. And I've always wondered to this day if maybe she was misdiagnosed and they drugged her instead of giving her the treatment that she needed. Um, I had an older sister and I had a younger sister. Uh, we grew up in poverty. We had food stamps back when they actually came in the books. 
Um, we used to go to the food closet every month back when the USDA would give out cans of peanut butter and stuff like that. But the, the bigger issue is that my father would sell the little bit of money that we had and sell food stamps, usually 50 cents on the dollar to buy alcohol. And so for the first 20 to 21 days of each month, it was a really scary place to live in. Um, he was always very violent. And I believe at the end of the month, he was actually a decent person when he wasn't intoxicated, but it was really, really hard to remember. Um, early on, second, third grade, I, I, there wasn't as much physical abuse, but anything that I did that was good was taken away from me. And it's, you know, I, I always am reluctant to talk about that because it's not manly. Um, I mean, my profession, like working in law enforcement and being an attorney, you don't really talk about these things. You, you internalize it. You demonstrate that you can handle the pressure. But I, I want to start there because it was a pattern of escalation. So anything that I did that was good was taken away from me and everything that remained was bad. Um, it began to escalate where my, my father, I'm, I'm still gaining appreciation for this. My father is, is still around actually. He's on the land at the moment. He, he just got off of parole and he ran away, but um, he later in life was diagnosed with mental illness as well. Um, he was extremely OCD and we would never be able to meet these standards in, in the home that he put forth. So like as a child, when I was you know six, seven, eight years old, I wasn't able to cook properly. And so he would beat me again and again, or we wouldn't keep the house clean enough. And so he would beat us again and again because he was always, always drunk. So it got to a point, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, where I wasn't starting school on time because I was always healing from some sort of injury. Or I would be kept out of school and kept home sick, and my sisters would have to bring my homework because my father didn't want it seen that I had these, these physical injuries. And um, one of the things that, that sticks with me to this day is we would get these concerned phone calls home. So a teacher that I, when I actually went to school and they observed an injury, they would call my house to inquire what it was about. But there was never treatment or services. So all they were really doing was notifying my father of what they're watching out for, and he would change in the way that he would punish us so as to obscure what was, was being seen so we wouldn't have um, people coming to our house. Um, even with that, we still have Child Protective Services coming to our house, and they would ask questions, and I would do my best to convince them to leave. I would come up with a story, uh, the cat scratched me to explain whelps from an extension cord, or my sister punched me to explain a black eye, or I ran down the hallway, tripped, and, and fell into a doorknob, and I would actually act it out. Because if things were bad before Child Protective Services came, it would be way worse if I didn't make them leave. So a lot of times when the school would notify my father that they were concerned, they would later call, they would later hotline. Well, in the interim, that was a very deadly time for me because he's trying to part me substantially. And I would try to convince my father, hey, I would I'd come up with a story sometimes saying I can make CPS go away. And if I was able to do that, there would be at least a, um, a reprieve from, from, from being beaten. Um, at, at first, it was just like the normal stuff, belts, extension cords, belt buckles. But as time progressed, it got much more creative. My father liked to strangle me a lot. Um, and that's that's one of the things that in my current work, what I'm trying to do in, in writing a book, when I present, because I, I work for Missouri Office of Prosecuting Services, I do training on domestic violence. I'll, I'll say that as a, as a one-liner. My father strangled me a lot. But that's one of the things that has made me realize that I, I haven't begun to scratch the surface of healing. I have a lot more work to do because in, in writing the book, I, I detail it a little bit more. It's when he, was, when he would grasp me around the throat and hold me off the ground and he would shake me, I, I wasn't allowed to touch his hands. 
I couldn't fight back because if I did that, then the punishment would be greater. And so I just would have to sit there and I'd have to look in his eyes and, and, and try to ascertain whether or not this was my last day. And when he finally would throw me down on the ground, you know, I, I the, the punches and, and hits that came subsequently didn't even register because I was dizzy and disoriented. Um, one of the worst beatings I actually got was, was actually from my mom. It wasn't just my father that was abusive. A lot of times the, the, the partner in a relationship will also join in on the abuse. And I, and I don't blame my mom for it. I think my mom would punish me to prevent my father from punishing me. But because of that OCD atmosphere, she would be very, very effective. So the, the, one of the worst beatings I got was from my mom. She put me in a sleeping bag, and she beat me with a wooden pole that you hang clothes on. And as I look back, what, what really resonates with me the most wasn't the actual beating, because that's difficult. You know, you can't see where the hits are coming from, and, and they're really hard to block. So when she hit me high, I block high. She hit me low, I block low. And, and you quickly realize just to block your head. Um, but it was prior to when she was calmly coaxing me into the sleeping bag, and I had to get all the way in the sleeping bag, and I duck my head. And I actually thought for a moment, maybe I can give in to my mom. You know, it, it happened because I had spilled some soda. Um, I'll never drink soda again. I'll never do this again. I won't even drink water. I, you know, pleading with her, like, don't make this happen. And, and, and it still happened. I still got, got beat. And, and that one was one of those beatings where I couldn't keep food down for several days. And so then I got in trouble because I was throwing up and I wasn't eating. Um, the only saving grace in that is like some of the really bad beatings, there would almost be like a grace period because I was healing from so many injuries. I had lumps all over my faces and it, I have a dent in my skull in the, the back corner. You can't see it, but I'm touching it right now. Um, when it was really, really bad, I, I kind of had a break from a, for a little bit. Like they would let me heal first. Um, but in addition to this, my mom would try to run away um, to escape my father because he was very violent against her as well. And because she was diagnosed with mental illness, they would, my father being an articulate Caucasian male would go to the authorities. My mom, you know, obviously very disheveled and chaotic and, and distressed and emotional. He would say she has a mental issue. She has paranoid schizophrenia. Here's her meds, Halidol and Cogentin. Law enforcement would thank my father for, you know, courageously taking, looking after her and looking after the kids. And they'd put my mom in a mental institution. Um, if my mom was able to escape, she would end up in a battered women's shelter. She went there numerous times. Um, along with this story of, of, of chaos is the fact that my, my father liked to have a lot of sex. So um, I, I first learned about it because I, I had trouble going to sleep. And for some reason, I guess this was my coping modality, I would bang my head on my pillow until I like just fell out. And I would get in trouble for doing this. My sisters would hear me and they'd complain and so I'd get in trouble. So I would start staying up at night until I thought everyone was asleep. And then I would begin my process to try to go to bed. Well, that's when I learned my father would come into the bedroom and he'd have sex with my older sister. And so there were many nights that I have to wait till that gets done. And then I start my process and, and go to bed. And um, it's just one of those one of those reasons why it's really hard to talk about your past because as I look back, I have guilt. You know, I didn't protect myself. I didn't protect my sisters. I didn't protect my mom. And it's, it's one of the reasons why it's, it's difficult to share, but I have learned through sharing that you're, you're getting out some of the toxicity and you're also, you're helping others um, because maybe they will see their story in a different light or from a, from a different perspective. And I, I know when I've heard other people share, you know, there's that sense of commonality, like I'm not alone. Like, I'm not crazy for all of this stuff. 
um, you know, that I have struggles and stuff. It, it's it's normal to have some of these thoughts and some of these ideations and stuff. And so it's um, hearing okay, other okay, people. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, hold hold on a second, Albert. Okay. okay. Um, we have an hour and a half. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So we have a long time for you to tell your, your story. I want you to realize something. First of all, I want you to take a nice deep breath, okay? What you're telling okay. us is showing such courage, okay, on your part. And, and I so, so uh, admire you for coming out, you know, with all of these horrific things that you went through. And, you know, it's very common for kids to, um, very, very common for kids to feel like it was their fault or maybe they could have done more or maybe they should have tried to help the sister more and things like this. But remember one thing, you were just a kid, Okay. And and kids can't, you know, do the most to, to protect themselves even, you know. So none of this was ever, ever your fault. I just want you to know that. And I, I just so appreciate you being there. And, and so just take a deep breath and slow down because we love you, guy, okay? We, we, you're, you're family now, <laughs> okay? All right? And um, so just take a deep breath and, re- and try to relax a little bit. I know your tensions. Many of us have been terribly beaten. We know this, and it hurts so bad, inwardly, outwardly, psychologically, emotionally, every way that it can hurt, okay? And uh, okay. your story is, is is horrific. Now, what I want to do, okay, before you go on with your story, because we do have such a large panel and so forth, I'll probably only go to them like twice, but um, I do want to bring them on. Absolutely. So I'm going to go um, from the top down to the bottom. And uh, I have Lori first. And Lori Purcell is one of our um, major people here at NASCA. And I'm going to let her on. And um, Lori, your your mic is open. So go ahead. You must have a question or two. Go ahead. Oh, I have a lot. Your father being so violent already already clicked with me because I had one of those too. And then it never stopped. I mean, there there was no break unless he was sleeping. The tension that that caused, you know, it's that that energy. It's crazy. You know, it's totally crazy. So I can relate to you right right off the bat. Uh, My mother's also uh, mentally ill, and she did some really screwed up things. Um, But she was equally as violent and beat me. she beat me after I fell out uh, a second-story window. Uh, my brother threw me out because he was a crazy person as well. So while this is going on, and I'm listening to you, and you sound like me when I was younger, um, you are speaking beautifully, but you got to slow down a bit, <laughs> a little bit, um, because I want to really hear it and, and I pick it up slower, so I'm really interested in what you have to say, because I think that you're awesome to have survived this. Um, and all the writing, I mean, you already started realizing, I hey, do need help to get through it, you know, that's what mental health people are for. It's not what children are for. You are not born, people are not born psychiatrists. So when you were younger, you did not know what to do um, any more than you than your sister did. You didn't come with that knowledge yet. So don't feel guilty about not protecting anyone. You become a protector when you get older and you learn and and you look around. You're just a little kid, so don't you, try not to worry about that too much. 
Um, what the, the the head banging part? I did that myself. It it was just a way of getting that that anger or that energy. You had to get it out of you. So I also was a head banger. Um, there was nothing wrong with that. I know of other people who did that too. You know, you, you got to use whatever you, tools you have and uh, to get through it. And you're going to go so far. I mean, this is you in your uh, early stage, like from me years ago. Um, you're doing a wonderful job um, so far. So just keep doing it. Don't stop because you have a lot to offer. That's right. There you go. And if Lori says that, Lori means it. <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> yes, she does. And, you know, I, I think you're awesome. I really do. And um, so anyway, I'm going to go down to Kathy now. Kathy is the one who is responsible, all right, for um, for Albert being on. And uh, they know each other, and she told uh, Albert about NASCAR. And I want to thank you so much for doing that, Kathy. And um, so now it's your turn, okay? Well, I am just very impressed with Albert. His story is compelling, and it's an important story to be told, and it's an important story to learn, even as he's going through the process of healing, for him to share it as he's going through. Because I think sometimes, especially men these days who, you know, as younger um, children were taught to hold things in and, you know, men don't cry and all this type of thing of stuff. Um, no, you know, that uh, doesn't fly with me. And, and I think even in today's society, men are being taught more to, hey, feel your feelings. You know, you're allowed to feel your feelings now. It's, um, and, and I'm just, I'm not surprised that his story is very similar to mine because I'm sure it's very similar. The parts of his story are very similar. I had a mentally ill mother as well. My father demonized her as well. She ended up in the psych ward because he was the abuser of the family, the biggest abuser in my family. And, of course, um, it would all fall on her to because she was mentally ill and she was misdiagnosed for over 20 years as a paranoid schizophrenic and when we finally got her away from him and got her properly diagnosed with bipolar disorder and got her on the right medications she went a good 17 years with so many fewer episodes because his his abuse of her was absolutely horrendous in which I can identify with what uh, Albert has gone through because my father was also an alcoholic and he had sexual problems, you know, as well. He he had shell shock um, or P- what they call PTSD now, but it was shell shock. And uh, it just, um, you know, it ruins families. And this is what we as kids had to go through and had to endure and absolutely, you know, and it takes a while to learn that it's not your fault, that you didn't do anything to deserve it, you know, and nor could you necessarily be a protector of yourself or anybody else at that time. You know, there were adults that you you didn't, back even in my day, you know, we couldn't, we didn't have what we have now where there were the hotlines and the helplines, or at least we didn't know about it, you know. 
And uh, so things have come a long way in in that respect as to uh, children now being able to get help. And I am just so glad that you chose this profession, Albert, to be an attorney for child abuse and neglect because um, they need it. They need people like you. They need someone who's actually experienced it, who knows uh, what what they're going through, who can identify because, you know, you need that connection with them in order to understand how to help them the best way you know how to help them. So I admire you, I respect you, and I'm just so happy that I'm able to do whatever I can to help you get your story out. And also, you know, I'm here to be a friend, and, you know, uh, whatever you need me here for, I'm here to help support you in any way I can. So thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. You bet. You bet. Thank you for that, Kathy. But you can't have him. I want him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, he's mine first. Uh-uh, he's mine first. <laughs> you, we, we can't share? We can't do that? <laughs> oh, of course we can share, but you were oh, saying okay. he was yours. Uh-uh. <laughs> he's ours. He's ours. He's the Nazca families. <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, he is. And uh, thank you for all of that. Um, yeah, let me let me uh, go to Philip and and see if he has a um, something he'd like to say. Hold on, I'm getting his mic open. There we go. Okay. So Phillip, I just wanted you... to say that it sounds like it takes a lot of resilience on your part to go through that and to become anything successful. Yeah, yeah. Most people, I think, Philip would crumble. Okay. I mean, I've seen so many people crumble, and, and and not even with as much as he's gone through, and he has more to even talk about. So the very fact that he's like in one piece, <laughs> I think that's amazing in itself. Yes, I do. Thank you for that, Philip. Okay. Let me go down to Bill and see if you'd like to say Bill is our founder. And, um, Bill, do you have something you'd like to say? Well, just that I've been communicating with um, our guest tonight to set this show up, and Kathy was the one that suggested him, so I just want to acknowledge both of them. Uh, And this is a heck of a story. Uh, You've got, um, you know, everything from soup to nuts in here. (laughs) And I'm frankly impressed with um, how far along you've come uh, and, you know, where you are today as opposed to where you started, which we haven't heard. You know, we've heard where you started but not about today yet, and we'll get there. Uh, oh, but yeah. I want people to be alerted to the fact that, uh, you know, that there's a lot to share here. Albert Albert has been through lots. And, um, you know, I'm really glad that you uh, commit yourself. I know we're not the only one you talk to, talk to, of course. You talk to everybody, and so do we. I mean, this is about, you know, presenting to the community. And the community is not just our nonprofit. It's it's the adult survivor of child abuse, frankly, uh, the issues of prevention, intervention, and recovery. And um, you know, and, and how to um, make sure, how to teach people to teach children to watch for the signs and so forth, and how to teach people to watch for predators and when what to do about it. This is all really important stuff. And mm-hmm. I totally agree with you, Albert, that telling our story is the basis for which we attract other people. And so it's very important for us to tell at least a small amount of our story, basically every time we uh, get an opportunity to speak. Uh, you understand that. I'm, I'm glad you do, and I really appreciate your being here tonight. So thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. 
And um, thank you for that, Bill. Okay. Um, so we'll get back to your story here. Now, listen, um, a lot of us go through, um, you know, incest in the family. That's such a dirty word, isn't it? People don't like saying the word incest. It blows their mind. But the truth of the matter is um, it happens so often. It happens so often. I remember when I was walking through high school, the two guys I'd never seen before in my life, I once told Bill this, I don't know who the heck they spoke to, but he goes, incest, incest, incest is best. I go, oh, how do they know this stuff? You know what I'm saying? And um, and yet when you're a child and, and your, your father had, you know, um, attacked, because we're speaking about attacked, your sister and yourself too, okay, because it started up with you also. Um, this is something that is very, very difficult to put up with, especially when you tell, in my case, a mother and who didn't care. Oh, things like this happen in families. Well, yes, they do, but they're not supposed to, are they? Okay. So you see, when we go through all these horrible, horrific things in our life, it leaves scars, and it takes a lot of healing, you know, to get to, um, you know, where you're supposed to be. But I have to say something with you, all right? You, you're just starting now with a, a therapist, from what I understand here, and um, th- which is very good. Okay, many of us have had, you know, therapy. I had it years ago. And they straightened my ass out. Yes, they did. Holy <laughs> Christopher. But anyway, <laughs> but um, the point is you were already on your healing journey. You're already on your healing journey, and you need that therapy, too, to have so you can continue. You said yourself. So you can get to more or less what you meant is to where you're going to be and to continue on with your work. And you have so much to offer. Because, unfortunately, you know, you went through so much, and so much we've done, a lot of us have done that. So that's why we have so much to offer. And uh, so you're doing a fine job. I just want you to know that. You're doing a fine job, and I think you have guts. I'm a little on the rough side. I'm the rough side one <laughs> on the show. That's just the way I speak. But you, you have you have what it takes to help a lot of people, and um, I'm glad you're here. I appreciate okay. that. Thank you. Yeah, I really am. So talk about, um, okay, a lot of us have alcoholic fathers. I had one, too. Nice, huh? And he was terribly abusive, not to me, to my mother, and also to your mother on your case, too. Um, uh, and But then the beatings hit, you know, a lot of times the children get beaten also, which was your case. Um, did your sister get beaten? Or was so, it just you who... What happened with that? That's, that? that's a very loaded question. Um, yes, yes, my sister, my older sister got beaten. My younger sister did as well. I I had the most physical abuse. My older sister had the most um, sexual abuse. And my younger sister, I don't know to this day if she was sexually abused. I don't think she was. Uh, but she also dealt with physical abuse, just not to the, the level that I did. Yeah, that's just... The reason why... The reason why I... The reason why I say it's 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 loaded because, um, you know, and I, I'll tell my story as you let me. Um, I don't know what our time constraints are, um, but when when you're in that type of situation and you don't trust that the authorities can help you, you start doing whatever is possible of survival. And I understand that, and I'm trying to be okay with it. But one of the things that's the heaviest on my shoulders is is a time when 
and I and I I just finally talked to, with my older sister about this when I was like like two years ago, like was 35 years old. But um, there was a time when my dad was intoxicated, and um, he handed me a hammer and he instructed me to hit my sister. And you have to understand, if he told me to put my hand on a fire, I would do it, because if I failed to do so, I would be beaten, and, and then I'd still have to put my hand in the fire. So like the least harm is to just comply. But he handed me a hammer and he told me to to, to hit my my older sister and and I complied and and I and I know what you guys would say on the panel and I appreciate it but it still doesn't take away that act and I know I was a child and everything so as I said it was a bit of a loaded question there was there was a lot of violence that was going on in my home. Well, you know when you're so frightened like that, um, my mother had a way of looking at me that was so evil. <laughs> she always told me she was a witch and I do believe it. Um, but her the look that she had, and her mother had that same look. And then my stupid brother, and I'll call him stupid, he was one of my abusers, he had also that same look. It's like a, a depth of hatred that comes out to the eyes, and and it can, like, hit your soul. And when children are so horribly, horribly frightened of, of the mother, the father, and all this other stuff that's going on around them, you do what you have to do just for, that's sort of like survival for yourself, all right? And that's, you had that survival for yourself, and that's why you didn't fall apart. That's why you didn't crumble. And so, okay, your sister forgives you for that. I believe you said that. And um, please understand that she understands. She understands what happened, okay? I believe you. So... You know, and so you can sort of like take that heavy load that you're carrying on your shoulders right now off because she gets it. We all get it. So, you know, just let that go if you can because you have so much to work on. And um, But you're doing a fine job. You really just are. And we're so proud of you here at NASCAR. We absolutely are. Let's get back. Yeah. No problem. Let, let's get back, you know, to your story here. Um, now, you're saying here that the school was evidently aware that there were problems, and the school used to call my house, too. And you know what I used to do? When I wouldn't go to school, I'd write my own notes, and I learned how to write like my mother, and I'd sign my mother's name. That's what I did, <laughs> okay? And, and it worked. So the school would call. At least they did reach out somewhat to try and help, but not enough, all right? Um, I'm hoping that today things will change. I think they're going to. The school are mandated reporters and all this other stuff, so I think that will help. So when the school, he says here, when he went to school, there would be concerned phone calls home on brief visits from social workers, and things would be worse after they left. Now, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you were probably, were you told what to say and what not to say? Did, Did you have to go through that? Well, I I learned really quick that what happens at home stays at home, at home and I need to be careful what I said. Um, you know, sometimes if a teacher asked me, like, how my summer was and, and I said it was rough, then that would be something that would result in a phone call and, and, and a subsequent beating. Um, you have to understand, so the summer was the most dangerous part because I can be beaten pretty substantially and no one would see the injuries. We were very isolated. We didn't go outside and, and play in, you know, with other kids in the apartment building or, or anything like that. Nobody saw us. Um, and, and in fact, toward the end, you know, there's some people that weren't, weren't even sure that there were kids that lived in our apartment. So 
Um, I remember at one point I told Mr. Hudson, he was a third grade teacher, that he was going to be in trouble when my my sister got in his class. And and I was really saying it because I thought my younger sister was an handful. And I got home that day and, and, and I knew it was about me. My father was on the phone. It was a corded phone up against the wall and I could tell by his tone. And he ended the phone call. He walked over to me. He threw me on the ground, sat on the chest and started punching me full on in the face. And so every day, every day I brush my teeth and look in the mirror, my, my lower tooth is still chipped from, from that encounter. And eventually, I think my father understood that I wasn't talking about him, but just the thought that I was was enough to result in a beating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You see, these people, they're like wicked people, right? They're wicked. <laughs> you know, we're, we're children. We want to love our parents. But um, how can we love them? You see, you go through feelings also of hatred. I mean, I ended up hating my so-called parents, all right, because of their uh, treatment towards me. And this is all very normal when a child is being so horrifically abused. But then you have to learn that that's all normal because otherwise you have the feelings of shame and, and, uh, you know, other things that, that you go through. And uh, maybe I could have done things better. In your case, and in many people's cases on NASCA, um, no matter what you did, it wouldn't have helped the situation. You know what I'm saying? It wouldn't have helped because you were stuck. You were stuck in a situation, and so were your sisters, and, and that's just the way it was. And, and that's a horrific, horrific thing. Um, let me ask you something. Did you ever get into alcohol and drugs and stuff when you were a teenager or whatever? So, so okay, no, except one time I was in a, and I'm only saying this because I actually disclosed it when I joined the police department. One time when I was in the group home, I took a charge, which means someone inhaled marijuana and then I inhaled it. But outside of that, I tried to stay away from alcohol because I thought that would make me my father. And it, it took years before I realized that I was not my father. And, and now at home on occasion, I may recreationally drink a little bit of alcohol, but it's still not something I like I like to do. So I, I really got lucky because there's so many people in my situation that can't say that. They turn to alcohol and substance abuse as a form of self-medication. Right, exactly. And so many of us on NASA, myself included, um, we did that, you know. And, and um, I don't know, I ran away from home. And did you ever think about running away from home and things like that? I actually tried to run away from home once. My mom had ran away, and I convinced my father that I can find her and convince her to come back home so that the authorities wouldn't find out. And he let me out the door, and I decided I was just going to be homeless, and I started wandering the streets. And um, I, I soon realized that it was going to be pretty, long story short, it, it was going to be pretty hard to be homeless on my own. I had no shelter, no food, no extra clothes, nothing like that. And I wandered over to a um, police substation in Sacramento and walked in the door, and I actually thought about telling what was going on. And the person sitting behind the desk appeared to be a sergeant at the time, and he was on the phone. And as soon as I, w- I walked in, he said, are you Albert? And I said, yeah. He, he said, your dad's on the phone, and he's worried about you. And at, at that point, I, I really felt my, my father was, like, omnipresent. He was he was everywhere. And so I told the, the law enforcement officer that, that I couldn't find my mom, and I was on the way back home. So that that was, that was like, the last chance for me to, like, have some hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you ever feel like, um, you know, so many times um, we feel like committing suicide. We we go down that route also um, because we just feel like we're so stuck. We can't move forward. We can't move backwards. We And uh, a mother and a father both, you know, that uh, gave you problems. And um, did you ever feel suicidal or anything? I mean, I certainly did. 
So that that is that is a very unequivocal yes. Um, the the last chance for the authorities to intervene before my mom's eventual homicide, my father she ran away again and he was running around in the complex outside, swinging a hammer at her and he he cracked her in the skull with a hammer. The ambulance um, came and and I convinced my father to let me go with my mom to the hospital to make sure my mom didn't say anything and. Once we got to the hospital, I was wandering around the hospital at UC Davis Medical Center in California and in Sacramento, and I found myself on a five-story parking garage, and I, I walked up to the edge, and I, I really thought about jumping, but I thought with my luck I would probably survive. But there, there's, there's a silver lining in that story, too, because uh, I don't know if it was a doctor or a nurse or what, but a medical professional find me, found me wandering the hospital, and they brought me to a cafeteria, and they sat me down and they bought me a chicken sandwich and I, and I had a meal and like in that, and they're just asking me normal kid type things. And like in that moment, I realized the world isn't just a horrible place I'm, I'm living in. And I always wish I can go back and thank that person because, you know, it was just a seed of hope. You know, there, it was a positive moment where I could just be a normal person. So although, yeah, I, I felt like jumping on, 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 you know, a few minutes prior. Um, it also is something that I remember to this day that there are people out there that, that are good and decent. They're not all like my father, and, and that's something I've always carried with me. Mm-hmm. That's so true. It's so true. It's hard, though, many times to find them. And when you're stuck in a situation like what you're, you were in and so many of us you know, have been in, um, you feel like, you know, you, you just feel so overwhelmed, like a heaviness comes over your body, comes over your feelings. I develop terrible panic attacks. Other people develop other things. I mean, there's all kinds of things that children uh, do, like with the head banging, like you were just mentioning not too long ago. That's very common. And uh, some kids have to put a helmet on, <laughs> you know, because they're going to hurt themselves, you know. So... Um, you know, you can go on with your story. It says, my father would have the most sex with my older sister when my mother was in a shelter and institutionalized. I would be awake in the same room when this transpired. My God, how did that, what on earth were you thinking? I mean, you're right there, and this is going on. And, I mean, that's a very, very sensitive subject right there. And it's also a very traumatic thing that happened. I mean, were you scared? Were you, uh, was this the eldest sister? Yes, it was the eldest yeah, so, sister. So, so th- this is, I think this is an important message to convey. So it seemed uncomfortable. It seemed wrong. But at the time, I, I didn't know how to process it or what to do with it. You have to uh-huh. understand, I knew the physical abuse was bad because I was made to lie about it, and lying is supposed to be good. But we didn't talk about the sexual abuse and so I didn't talk about it with my peers. You know, any time I was at school, I was this happy kid because I wasn't at home. I didn't talk about anything at home. And even, like, in fifth grade when we did the, you know, sex ed training, it's not like the teacher said your parents shouldn't be having sex with you or your siblings. And so I, I, I really didn't, didn't know. But um, as an adult, I also found out that my mom, on at least in my, story, my older sister's story is hers to share, but, it, you know, I was obviously privy to it. On at least two occasions, my mom had, dressed up my my older sister and presented her to my father and I I think it was on those days she just wasn't trying to run away or end up in the shelter or something like that and and like you said earlier my my sister doesn't view that as being my mom's actions but that is a result of my father but our the violence continued to escalate and and after the hammer incident where I went to the hospital uh, my mom tried to it was uh, December 4th 1998 um, my mom tried to run out the bedroom window and my father didn't want her to and 
that blind obedience, he told myself and my siblings to go get belts and socks to, to prevent my mom from escaping. And he tied her up in a hogtie position while she was laying flat on her stomach up against the wall underneath the window. But after he tied her up, he stood on the back of her head. She jumped, he jumped up and down, and, and then he spat on her. And several hours later, it was discovered that she wasn't breathing anymore. And we called the fire department the next day, and they, they untied her. And she was still in that same hogtie position. Her face was smashed. Her, her clothes were soiled. And, um, you know, and, and this is something that I didn't even remember as a, as a child, but in reviewing my child protective services records, um, it, I, you know, it's one of those things I repressed, but I, I do recall this now is that my father actually thought about doing a group suicide, which probably would have been, you know, more homicides and, and one suicide, but he decided to go ahead and turn himself in at the fire department and, but he was never arrested. Actually, we went on like normal. We went to school the next Monday and then yeah. that's when things really started to get the worst for me. And then that's when, um, my father started looking to me for, other forms of gratification that like I shouldn't even have knowledge of as, as, a, as a child. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me ask you something. I don't mean to interrupt you here, but this is so horrific. Now you have law enforcement background also. Now, um, so the, your mother is found in, in a hogtied position and all this other stuff. And, and of course she had passed away and, um, and still he got away with it. Yes, and so in the actual records, the DA, for, with the hammer incident, uh, the DA declined to press domestic violence tra- uh, charges because they thought it was a bizarre accident. The story we told as kids is my mom stood up into the hammer requiring stitches, and although they notated this as bizarre, that's what they used to close it out. Uh, the CPS record said there may be future domestic violence, especially when the father is drunk and he has an alcohol issue case to be closed because we didn't want to, to have any, um, we didn't want any help or services. And then when you fast forward a few months later, when my father actually killed my mom, the DA declined to press charges because they were unaware that there was a history of domestic violence. Um, and I don't blame the DA. I don't blame law enforcement. I think this is why this is why I share because I think this is a societal issue. You have these agencies that are supposed to help people, but they're oftentimes under resourced. Staff are overworked and and undercompensated. I mean, they want to be able to take care of their family too. And then you have to think as a frontline worker, you also have to deal with secondary trauma because these types of cases happen again and again, day in day out. So the DA did not review their own history. They did not reach out to EMS or fire or child protective services of the school. And then they made a decision with an incomplete picture. Um, And my father ultimately was charged with um, 56 counts of molesting my older sister. He pled guilty to 10 and he served, you know, a little bit of time in prison, Uh, but he's, he's never been charged with the, the actual homicide, but it's, it's some of the stuff that happened after the, so I'm 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 closed off to a certain extent with some of that because, like leading up to it, I had, I had just begun to shut down, but some of the the violence and things that occurred after the homicide are, are what I think we struggle to process the most because even before the death of my mom, he had made statements like, if my wife dies, my older my older sister would become his wife, and sure enough, after um, my father killed my mom he started making my older sleep, my older sister sleep in the same bed that my mom slept in. 
And my older sister obviously didn't want to. And when he would go to sleep, she'd try to sneak to the children's bedroom and he would wake up and have her come back in. And, um, you know, my younger sister had trouble processing this and the whole family dynamics and stuff. But we, we stayed in that situation for several more months. Um, there's school records where I was saying sexually inappropriate things at school and the principal thought it was a red flag, but he was going to keep a closer eye on me. But uh, th- that's why I do the work that I do, because trying to educate them that the sexual abuse wasn't happening at school. It was it was happening at home. Right. And it says here, too, several months later, my older sister tried to kill my father and herself. How did she do that? What did she do? So that that's what finally brought us into care is that my, my older sister, and, and I view it as being courageous, she, she tried to look after her younger siblings, my, my, myself and my younger sister, and she tried to kill my father. He got his foot broken, but he, she was unsuccessful. So then she tried to hang herself by a belt in, in the closet. And then my father, this, and I, I, I actually I don't know if it was my father or my sister and myself. I, I really don't remember, but at least the records say that um, that my, my younger sister and myself discovered in the closet. My father tried to get the belt off her neck and called 911 because he was having trouble. And then when he got the belt off, he hung up. Law enforcement still responded. So then they removed my sister, but they left us there. It wasn't until she started disclosing the sexual abuse that then we finally came into care. And then my, I was actually split from my, my siblings. We all went to different cities in, in California, yeah. and we never resided together again. Wow, wow. So, but you do, do you talk to them today or, you, you know, to your older sister and younger sister? We are in a better place now. There have been years that have gone by that I haven't talked to my sisters. Um, being separated as teenagers was, was difficult in and of itself. But then when I talked to my siblings, I was reminded of what we went through. So it's it's taken us quite a while to process things. When I was younger, um, I drove from the Midwest to California to get my younger sister out of a mental institution. Uh, she was about 19, I think, in the time in college, and she started – stopping vehicles in the middle of a city street for God's holy war. And, and they went ahead and put her in a mental institution. And um, I was the closest contact because as you know, there, you know, once you leave the system, there's, there's not much support there for you. So I had to drive halfway across the United States to be able to get her out of the mental institution, but we're, we're in a better place now. We really haven't talked about our past in depth, um, but we're at least speaking to each other and building on our relationship. Right, right, right. Well, you know, I think you're all wonderful, you and your sisters, you know, because uh, a lot of, um, I used to work detention. This is why I'm asking you some of these questions because, <laughs> you know, with the hog tying and all this other stuff, and it, to me it was like horrific that, you know, the law enforcement didn't do a little bit more there, okay? And uh, so I didn't quite understand that. But things were different back then. Like, what year was that, okay? I'm just curious. Do you remember when you yeah, moved to Yeah, so the death yeah. yeah, that that was in that was in 1998. But I, I hmm. yes, things are are different, but there's more of it now, and a lot of abusers are getting better at obscuring what's going on. You still have law enforcement that, um, even those that want to improve, they struggle to find the training. They struggle to be able to have the time to take off of working the road to go into training. You have social services that are short-staffed all the time. A close friend of mine is a circuit manager over two counties, and she's traveling to another city to take 
frontline hotline calls um, because there's just not enough staff. And so even, even when a hotline call comes in, if they don't have the people to actually respond, by the time social services gets there, it's possible that the information has become perishable and they don't have the facts to put someone in a better place. And then looking at it from my perspective, that individual isn't going to trust the authorities because when they came, they were unable to help. So even though my situation happened, you know, a couple of decades ago now, um, it still can continue to occur if we don't do more to help those entities and agencies that are supposed to be providing assistance. Right. I, I can agree with that. I know. I, I remember how many um, people I had in my caseload. <laughs> oh, my God. But you see, today, things are much worse, Okay because of all the trouble that we have in the world. And, and those who are right on the brink of mental illness have worked in all different type of capacities. So people who are on the brink of mental illness and breakdowns and all this other stuff, with all the pressures that they have from the outside, all of a sudden they do break, and then they take it out on their children, they take it out on their wives, and, and uh, the ER rooms are just loaded. And with children, it seems to be mostly head injuries that are going into the hospital. For whatever reason, it's head injuries. And uh, that's a horrible thing. So you see, we we know about this stuff, and, and also, too, so um, I agree with what you're saying, because when the caseloads are so high, when they're so high, you can't even do a, a very good job, as good a job as uh, you know as maybe you could do, because you're so crunched. And with all of the problems that we're having today, it makes it even worse. It just simply does. Absolutely. Okay, I want to go to the panel. And I'm going to go back up to Lori and uh, see what she has to say. She might have a question or a comment she'd like to make. Go ahead, Lori. Your mic is open. Did you have any kind of gap between the relationship between you and your mother um, other than her illness? I mean, it was a like a loving kind of mother. She really wasn't. I mean, she flipped out and did extremely horrible things. But was there anything about her where it was good that, you know, that you could see through when you were younger? I I appreciate that that question, but I really don't know how to answer that because I don't don't feel I really had a relationship with my mom when she was alive, and and I I don't think I've really had one, like, afterwards. Like, I try to pray and stuff, and you could do that to, you know, a relative, and, 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 and I don't. And... I never grieve the death of my mom. I, I want to, but I, I don't know what that looks like. And that's, that's something that's been very difficult for me. And, and something that always sticks with me is like the day that she died, I never told her that I, I, I love her. And, and that's always been hard, but I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. Yeah. I mean, I was a question cause I had the same problem. I, I, I wouldn't have to answer it either because I had no relationship with my mother. Um, but just the way you were talking, it kind of seemed like you were distant. It was more distant than close, which is totally understandable. You know what I like about you most? I like the intelligence God gave you, because with everything that you've gone through, um, you would have like just been totally cracked up and, and useless to society, so to speak. You probably would have turned to, not you, but another person with your circumstances. I know the horror of having a dead person um, being a, a murder, um, and this was one of the tough things that was for me tonight. 
because you triggered a memory where my my aunt and uncle um, he actually my uncle actually shot her in the head and killed her, and I remember you know the night, the family, the faces. I remember it all, and at this time I still get triggered. And what I'm worried about that you might not know is that you're going to be healing all your life. And you've done a a remarkable job just on your own in the beginning of what you're doing. But as you grow, um, things, maybe smells, maybe somebody's look is going to trigger you and it will bring you right back, you know, to as when it happened. Um, I'm older. But when I see the name Dick Wolf on TV, um, because that was the son, I get triggered. So basically the only thing that I can tell you is that down the line, throughout your life, this is going to happen to you. Um, You just have to get a support system that's going to bring you out of it and put you up back on your track, what you're going and what you want to do. And it's your intelligence that's going to do that. But don't think anything is wrong, you know, with you. I mean, your relationships with other people, they're going to get better, you know, better and better and even better as you age. Uh, All Mm -hmm. these conflicts that are going on within you and just be your childhood being interrupted totally as a normal childhood they're going to fall into place as you go up in things. You know, you'll eventually get to the level where you'll be able to say that you fit in, even though you're always going to be different. There's no doubt about it. You'll always be damaged. This stuff cannot, it's just part of your life. But there's going to be more of your life. And it is yeah. going to get better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I want to tell you something. Um, huh. you, you 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 hit something on me too, and the reason why I want you to know this is because my mother never once told me she loved me. Okay, so when she was passing away, she was on the gurney in the outside of the uh, the bedroom there, whatever. I don't know why she was on a gurney, but anyway, she was there, and all of a sudden she 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 sees me standing there, and uh, but she couldn't speak. So she mouthed, Carol, I love you. And I, there's no way, honey, that I could say I love you back. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I was so shocked, okay, that she finally said it on, on as she's passing away. And, and so, you see, that leaves something with you for a long time that bothered me, like you're saying. Okay, I get it. And, and it's not your fault. See, we we have titles. We have titles, all right? Albert, you have mother, you have father, you have sister, you have brother, whatever you have, aunts, uncles, and all this other stuff. But they have to earn those titles, too, right? People can have titles, but that doesn't mean that they're meant to be a parent, okay? So don't let that bother you either, all right? I get it. So um, let's get back to your story here. Oh, well, wait a minute. I want to go down to uh, to Kathy. Yeah, that that really got me because that's something that bothered me for years. And I said, wait a minute. She, if you're a mother, you're supposed to act like a mother, and then you wouldn't have that problem of wondering if you had any relationship with her or if you had any love for her because it would come natural. 
okay? So that's not, don't let it be your problem. Let's go down to Kathy here. Boy, there's a lot to uh, <clears throat> unravel here with with this, and it's a, a really helpful story. I'm really appreciative that you are sharing this. It's not easy. I'm sure that this is difficult for you. But I've been kind of taking a few little notes here <clears throat> that kind of help with them. Um, Either maybe some of my healing over the years, uh, being my age, I'm 67 years old now, and I've had, I didn't even start healing until my 30s anyway, which is kind of a, a, the type of thing that oftentimes happened to survivors, adult survivors of child abuse. So it can take many years, and it also it can affect with, you know, I actually started healing because I, I was seeing some things in myself that, maybe wasn't conducive to being a parent, you know, because I was, I had a family. It's like, I don't want any of this to affect my kids, so I better take care of myself before, you know, I allow any of that to happen, which I'm really glad that I did. So one of the things that I learned in my um, healing journey is we survivors, we ch- when we're children when these things are happening to us. And as Carol had said and others have said, you know, it was not our fault. None of what happened to us or our siblings was our fault. But what we have a tendency to do is own the guilt and shame of our abusers. And we own it. For years and it's really not supposed to be upon us to own that it's upon our abusers to own it um, that's that was their actions they did that you didn't do that so the fact that you feel responsible for your father telling you to take the hammer to your sister you were a child and that is Guilt and shame that does not belong to you, should not belong to you. That belongs to your father, and he either needs needed to own it or deny it or do whatever he needs to do with those feelings, but those feelings are feelings that never should have been put upon you, ever, no. ever. No. So I just wanted to tell you that I had to go through that learning process and to learn that that guilt and shame is not mine to own. And it is a process to actually apply that and learn to live because, you know, we're victims when this happens to us. And in our healing journey, we learn to become victorious over what's happened to us. As we heal and as we learn, we can become victors too. So um, I, it's best, I'm so glad you're talking about it because mm-hmm. internalizing it just, just um, it tends to make it just wound up in us and we don't know how to make head nor tails. But the more you talk about it, and, and I'm sure as you're writing your memoir, as I did when I wrote mine, it helps bring these things that are difficult to the surface so that we can deal with them and we learn how to deal with them instead of internalizing them so i'm glad you're writing your memoir because that that 
helps. It's a tough thing to do, but it's also very cathartic to do. So kudos to you for doing that. I also, um, you know, you were speaking about your sister and yourself even considering uh, dying by suicide. I'm sure you've heard this before, but I'm just going to reiterate it, that I'm so glad you didn't. And something that stuck in my brain as I was healing was somebody said, yeah, because I also had considered it, um, that, of course, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary situation. As a child, we're not, we just think that's going to be our life forever. We, we don't, we can't see past that dark tunnel. We can't see, as you had mentioned, you know, when that lady, uh, when that medical professional sat you down with a, a chicken sandwich and you realized that, oh, there are good people in the world. Oh, there is some good in the world. Oh, there is, there's better, you know, this is not normal. You know, this is not normal. There, There's a different way to live. And you're now living that different way. And I just applaud you for doing that. And and that also will help make you a better father, too, to be honest with you. Um, and, and I think uh, you had mentioned about uh, not being able to tell CPS and stuff like that. You know, a lot of kids they don't feel safe telling on their abusers, you know, so it's hard for CPS or anybody else to, they have to go by what they're told and what what the evidence is. But we do, we are dealing with what I consider a broken foster care system, a broken um, uh, judicial system. We have all kinds of broken systems that we're dealing with, and I'm so appreciative that you are in the position that you're in as an attorney for these children because we need more of you. We need more who understand. We need more who've been through the processes. We need more who've been through the emotions to deal with these children and help them provide the resources that they need to be able to get through this and get out of these situations. And, then and you know what else? Let me let me say yeah. something there, Kathy. They need mm-hmm. a little more training too, okay? Because don't oh, forget. Yes. It, because a lot of times these kids, two things there. I want to say something about that because I've had it. I, I worked in a place where this guy had foster kids, and they were up in the attic, honey. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. oh, he yeah. got caught. Yeah, he got caught. All right, so they weren't allowed to be with his children even. It was a terrible situation. But anyway, oh yeah, so they need a his... lot more trauma-informed um, oh, yeah. foster parents, well, trauma-informed me... therapists. Yeah. Even okay, hold on. All hold of on that, second. most definitely. Now, my last yeah. point is I am separating the, the siblings. Um, I'm thankful that they're making um, some inroads there with bypassing the um, uh, Siblings' Bill of Rights back in 2012. And uh, <clears throat> I actually am going to send you an article, Albert, about that. I, I know a couple of the people that are in this article about this legislation. So I'm going to send you that, and I'll see if I can connect you with these, these other two people who have been working on that. So That would be good. That would be good because he needs all the support that he can get right now, and, and you know, so he can, so he can continue on on his healing journey. And one thing I want to say here, yeah, we have a two one six area code here. Uh, yes, we do. I don't. I just saw your number. Okay. Um, what I want to say to you uh, is, speaking about the social service, all right, when they go in and they do their uh, monthly whatever it is, 
you know, to come in and, and check on the families and all this other stuff. Um, remember, kids are told ahead of time, you know, how to, how, what to say, what not to say, usually, usually, Albert. And uh, if they would come a day ahead of time, instead of coming, you know, that day, and hopefully the people at home when they do that, they would catch them as to how they really are. Because what they do is they clean the house. Um, it, it looks like Ozzy and Harry or whatever, and now I'm aging myself. <laughs> but leave it to Beaver, is that better? I don't know. But, you know, the place looks, you know, clean, and the kids are standing there. You, there's more training because, you see, if kids don't make eye contact, if they don't make eye contact with the social worker, that's a red flag. You see, they have to be taught, too, a little bit more what to look for because there is so much of the other going on. So I just wanted to get that out there. Let me get the uh, – thank you for that, Kathy. That's very good. Um, let me get the uh, 216 area code uh, number here. Yeah, you were on, you've been on for like 10 minutes or something. Um, do you want to say, make a comment or ask a question? Hello, hello? Okay, I'm going to put them back on, on hold. I'm not too sure who I was talking to. All right. Um, I'll try one more time. Who am I speaking to? 216 area code? Okay, I'll put you back on. A lot of times people just want to listen, and we all know that, and we all get it, too. Okay. If I can say so, something before you continue? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. I want you to go on with your story. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Well, no, just that point on unsanitary living conditions or, or, or extremely clean living conditions, I think that was one of the issues in my story because a lot of times there's this equation of a dirty home with neglect and neglect leading to abuse. But because of my father's OCD, our house was absolutely immaculate. Like whenever there was domestic violence and there would be damage to the wall, he'd get paint from um, the manager and you'd paint it and fix it. So every time you came to our house, it looked as if there were no kids that lived in it. In fact, after the death of my mom, one of the notations in, from the social worker is that there were no toys in the children's bedroom. So that's what drives me is that training so people know what to look for. Because absent a shared experience, we have to provide them with that information so they know what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're learning that. And, and, you know, people have to understand that, uh, you know, they don't have enough training yet. The lack of eye contact. Were you able to make eye contact with anybody? Did you have problems with that in your life when you were younger? So I grew up in California, so I never had an issue with eye contact. Actually, when I moved to the Midwest, it seems like that isn't as common and it was somewhat off-putting. But when I was being interviewed, my father was generally present. And Mm -hmm. even if they came to the school ahead of time, I was trained to make that phone call home. So my, my biggest issue is that even if they were to discover something, empowering them to take action to remove me from the situation, because failing to do so all but ensured that I would lie to them next time because I knew that I wouldn't be safe otherwise. Right, right, right. Oh, boy. What a situation. What a situation. Okay. Um, so let's let's get back. Okay, let's get back. Um, Philip, is there something? I'm going to go to him quickly because now we're actually it's getting a little bit later. Um, Philip, is there something <clears throat> you want to mention here? Um, are you a parent or a husband? I, I have three boys. Uh, my oldest is 17. 
He's a track star, 4.0 student. He got a call from Notre Dame and Duke in the same week um, for recruiting. Um, He's already bypassing anything that I've ever done. I was the first one in my family to get a college degree, let alone a terminal degree. And he's, I I expect hope, and he is proving to be um, someone that can accomplish more than I ever dreamed of. That's my oldest son. Then I have an eight-year-old who's doing amazing things. He also um, went to nationals for track last year, and then I have a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure you're taking good care of them. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I, didn't I, see, I, I didn't hear what you said either. What did you say? I've seen, well, you, I'm, okay. I'm sure. I'm sure that you're a good father. Yeah, I'm working I on am it. Too. I'm, I'm trying to be the best. You know, I just from because thank you for that, Philip. You know, the way he's speaking and handling himself now. And he's like, did it backwards. Now he's getting his therapy instead of getting his therapy back before. I mean, a lot of us do that, though, I have to admit. Um, a church got a hold of me, and uh, I wasn't too happy about it at first. And they said, you're a mess. And I said, yes, I am. And that was the end of that. And I went in, and they, they, they straightened me out, believe me. But um, the point is, you know, you're already you, you're a brilliant person. You're very, very smart. Someone had touched on, on that, and I think, I don't know, maybe it was Lori. Yeah, I think it was Lori. Um, you're very, very smart. And the very fact that you went through all of this stuff and all the things that you've been through, and you're able to tell your story, and you're, 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 you're together. You're already together. You may have some things that you're you're struggling with, and and like uh, I think Kathy had said, had mentioned, or maybe it was Lori, you're going to struggle with things, you know, as they come about. There's going to be some triggers and things like that. Things will trigger you. And, uh, but that's all normal. You're going to have maybe flashbacks at times. Have you ever had flashbacks? I don't know if you have yet. Yeah, and and so I'm I'm trying to become more self-aware because the higher my stress level is, the more susceptible I am to memories from the past and and creeping right. in of suicidal ideation. So it is something that I have to be very aware of. Yeah, well, that's good. I, I need to bring that out because uh, that is something that that does happen. Once you bring forth self-awareness that hey, I need work, okay, even though it wasn't your fault. Um, then, you know, certain things can come forward. And uh, I think Lori, too, had mentioned that. But you're doing a fine job, okay? I can tell. And you know what? Um, I'm a wonderful mother to my children. Yes, I am. I can honestly say that. I love them to death. I went through two divorces because they were nuts. I didn't know how to choose. I chose a bad partner both times, actually. The first one was the worst. Um, My second one, well, he had his good times, and I do have some good memories with him, and so do the kids. But um, we we don't know many times how to choose good partners. We just simply don't. And uh, so the, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, you don't want your kids to go through what you went through. Already they haven't. Look at what you've just told us. Already they're, they're doing fine. So you're doing something right, okay? I appreciate so, that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's the truth of it. Now, let's get on with your story. Let's talk about, I mean, everything here has already been spoken about. The welfare system got involved, and this is already at the end of your bio. Um, You became more twisted and creative to avoid detection. That's when you were being abused and and things you had to say in the phone calls and all these terrible things that we spoke about. Let's talk about today, okay, and and exactly what you're working on. And um, what type of work are you doing today? Go ahead and talk about that. 
right. Well, when I graduated uh, valedictorian from Lincoln University, um, and just, just for a moment, so the foster system, we were talking about some of the systems are broken. So I was in three different placements my sophomore year of high school, and I finally found a dysfunctional uh, mixed family that I was residing with, and it worked for me, and I started thriving. I was 4.0 at my high school, uh, editor of my paper, wrestling team, and then I was told on, on March 1st when I turned 18 I was going to have to move out, and they only gave me a couple months' notice, so I was looking at the prospect of being homeless. Um, a recruiter ended up coming and convinced my foster father at the time to let me stay, and so I, I, I was able to stay in that home until the day I graduated high school, and on the very next day, um, I was on a plane to Missouri um, with two UPS boxes to my name, and I did well. I tried to redefine myself at the university because no one knew me or my past, and so I, I tried to figure out who I am. Um, got really active and started being outgoing, which was something that was not normal for me. Um, after graduating the auditorium and being really active, I joined the Jefferson City Police Department for several years. Um, shortly after that, I, I went to St. Louis University School of Law. All of my internships were prosecutorial in nature. I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Circuit Attorney's Office. And then from my internship with the U.S. Attorney, uh, one of the U.S. Attorneys became a magistrate judge, so then I clerked for them. But after I graduated law school, I learned about this, this organization called Division of Legal Services, and it was a legal entity that represented Children's Division in Missouri. And so I, I loved it, and I, and I jumped on board. And um, oh my God, I aged in dog years. I only was there a few years, but the, the amount of cases that you have, and then the windshield try, time driving from corner to corner, it, it's a lot. And being self-aware with my stress level, and then the cases, I, I, I imposed a lot of stress on myself. Didn't want to lose a case, because if I lost a case, it meant a child hit would be impacted, and, and I was that kid. Um, so a after doing that for a few years, I switched over to children's div division directly, and then I provided legal aspects training. So I taught practitioners the law, because when you go in someone's home, you can't just do whatever you want. There are constitutional protections and regulations, et cetera. And so trying to make the law come alive for them in a relatable way so that they can retain the information, not make mistakes, because we didn't want to lose a case because someone made a mistake, right? If we lost a case, I want to make sure it's because we didn't have the right facts and we, we it, it wasn't there. I didn't want to lose a meritorious case because we had messed up. And through that, I, um, I found uh, Missouri Office of Prosecuting Services, and I, I started doing quite a bit of co-training um, with them, trying to teach law enforcement practitioners the, to, the warning signs and how to learn, um, find, identify opportunities to intervene. And most of my work now is, is geared toward that training and trying to prevent others from going through what I've gone through. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, you know, so there's so much work that needs to be done even in our communities. You know, I speak about this often because um, so often people know, um, okay, usually when children are, are beaten up, okay, at home, they and even if it's 95 degrees out, they're going to wear the long sleeves to try to cover the bruises. Maybe their parents tell them, you have to cover those bruises. You can't do too much with a black eye. So I had a few of them once, and in fact, my left eye has never really healed properly because I got hit so hard at one point in, in, in my left eye. When I had that operation, people have it. doesn't do any good. It's no good. So I have problems seeing and reading and going down and scanning and, and all this other stuff. Um, but, you know, we can't hide all those those abuses. So then it becomes what? It becomes behavioral, all right? And we know about behavioral. We touched upon it. Um, you know, many times kids become juvenile delinquents. And I always say this, too, 
Um, you know, many times we'll say, oh, that's a bad kid. You see all these kids doing bad things. What about the kids in the streets right now, what they're doing with the looting and all this other stuff that's going on? What kind of home do you think they come from? Okay. And what are we teaching our children today if if law enforcement, who's kind of stuck right now, but if if uh, people in charge, we'll put it that way because I'm not supposed to be a political right? <laughs> um you know, if if things don't change, we're teaching our children it's okay, you know, to go and steal. As long as it's under $1,000, you're not going to get into too much trouble, okay? And um, if you go to jail, well, it doesn't matter. You're going to be out in a few days anyway. This is what we're teaching society and, and our children. So we're in a bad place right now, and we need people like you to, like, bring it down to where it belongs. And we need, you know, we need our political system, we'll put it that way, to come down to where things belong because what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong, okay? So there's a lot of things that we are dealing with. So we're trying to, you know, those that need to heal and continue on in the healing journey, there's all this pressure from the outside, so there's going to be a lot more uh, statistics where people are, you know, killing each other and all this other stuff, a significant other and all this, and then, of course, with the children. So, I mean, social services does have their hands full right now because what we had, say, four years ago is tripled. And then with all the other people coming in, you know, from the border, they have the good, the bad, and the ugly, all right, and the fentanyl things and all these things that are being dealt with today. Uh, It's a very, very hard world that we're living in. So... When we are people who have gone through such terrible abuse, and we know we know ourselves, we know where you know our frail you know, moments are, and, and the, the parts of us that still need to heal, we know about that. And then you have all kinds of other interference things from the outside. Uh, it makes our healing process even harder. Okay, I'm on the night owl. And I get all kinds of phone calls in the AM. Sometimes they're hour long. Sometimes they're two hours long. And then I sleep in the daytime when I have to take vitamin D because I don't get enough sun. <laughs> oh no, I have to sleep sometime. But you know, like um, it's it's a world that we're living in that certainly is adding to what we already have. And most of it is anxiety and depression and uh, and things like that. So what you, the type of work that you're doing. And you being such a wonderful advocate, you have the makings of being a wonderful advocate. And, you know, wherever you can speak, go out and do it. You're going to love it. And uh, you're going to love yourself more. And and you don't have a – you have maybe some feelings because you have the guilt feelings you were speaking about earlier, but we all do. Well, many times I think, well, I could have done this or maybe I should have done that. No. Don't even put yourself in that position because I keep trying to drum in people's heads. We were just kids. So don't ever feel guilty uh, about anything that you were talking about and that mother issue. I'm going to drill that into your head one more time because uh, just because she had the title and uh, she wasn't motherly, okay? (laughs) So uh, you've learned how to be fatherly, okay? And I give you a tremendous amount of, of uh, you know, I'm so so much gratitude that there's someone on this show who has gone through so much who can be fatherly. You should be proud of yourself because I'm proud Thank of you. you. Yes, sir, I'm proud of you. So um, we don't have much time left, but what would, what would you leave, you know, um, we have about five, six, seven minutes. 
what would you leave with the people that heard this this story um, about hope? If if I could do one thing, if if anyone in the audience is actually listening, the one thing that I can change, not for myself but someone else, is starting this process of healing sooner. And so I actually had made a children's book toward that purpose because there are so many youth that internalize the negativity around them and they don't have a means to express themselves. They may lash out and engage in self-destructive behavior. For me, when I first got in the group home, I, I did suicide attempts, but I was I was trying to see who would be there for me, who would help out. So I made a children's book to tell that any child going through this type of stuff, it's, it's not their fault. The world is blowing up around them. And also to tell caregivers who may want to help a child like this, but then ends up with a child that starts cursing and punching holes in the wall, that, you know, the depths of their trauma make it so that child may not have a whole lot of modalities to cope. And so they may have these impenetrable, de- impenetrable defenses. But if we can get past that and connect with them and, and build trust, then that child may start to verbalize and, and start the process of healing, not when they're 37 like myself, but while, while they still have resources and they're, they're still potentially in the system. So I had made a book called um, Little One, You Are Loved, and I think it's a message that should go out to anybody. So I, I, I made it free on YouTube. My eight-year-old read the story. And, and really it's from my parenting handbook. I really don't know what to do as a parent because – I know what not to do. I, I mean, I can't reach out to my father for advice, and I, I know obviously don't kill your spouse and things like that. So I just started with telling my kids that I love them, I'm proud of them, and I appreciate them. And so I incorporated that in the story. And once the little one is in a caring, nurturing environment, they started to to thrive again. Um, so if, if you guys have the opportunity to look at that book, and if you think it's of value, I would just ask that you share it with anyone that you think can can benefit from that message. Well, you can be sure. Um, I, I was going to get to your book because it's right here in front of me. It says, little one, you are loved. And you, you, that's so true. That's so true. I mean, my kids, they think I'm mushy, okay? <laughs> I don't care. Because when you grow up in a house where there's no love, and then you have children, um, you know, those children need to know that they're loved. You know that because you went through it. I went through it. So many of us have gone through that, the not being loved thing, okay? My mother used to tell me she was a farm girl from Iowa. The other side of the family that I found out wasn't really mine, okay, through ancestry. Um, uh, they, they were city people. Uh, they were more loving. But my mother said that people in Iowa, which is where she was from, they don't say the word love, and I believed her for a long time. <laughs> you know, that's not true. All right, so it was, yeah. uh, you know, that's it. So what we do, I mean, my kids will say, oh, my, give me a hug. I don't need a hug now. I say, okay, well, let me know when you when you need it, okay, or you want it, whatever. Same thing with my grandchildren. I mean, I just love my family. I so much do. And they've all turned out quite well. They're not perfect. No one's perfect. But they've turned out pretty damn good, and I am just so thrilled. So I think your message is good, uh, and I think that your book, I'm so thankful that you wrote this book. It's very much needed. Little one, you are loved. Um, Thank you so much for writing that book, and you can be sure that we at NASCA, and you are a family member now, okay? Um, we're going to look into this book, and we need more books like that. Yes, we can all write our memoirs. I wrote, I wrote mine a long time ago. I made it to Japan, and then, <laughs> that was uh, that was outrageous. But 
on the other hand, it, it's my memoir. It was my story. Men of, you know, we, we write these books, but we do need the the books for the children. It's very, very important. And uh, you know, people can use it as, as a tool. All right. And uh, those of us who have been so horribly abused, um, it teaches us how to talk to the children. I'm sure you have wonderful illustrations in it and so forth, and all age appropriate. So, you know, um, they need to learn to know certain things to keep them safe. We have those type of books. And then also, too, we have books where they need to know that they are loved and they're special and, um, you know, they're unique and in that sense that they are special and that they're going to do good things. All, all the positivity that none of us had when we were growing up, we, we could never do positive things, you know, because either we were too stupid or, <laughs> or, or whatever, whatever the case might be. So, again, I always encourage people to write those books for children, and uh, it'll certainly be on Amazon. Is it on Amazon now? It's Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, yeah. But it's free, though, on YouTube, free on YouTube. Okay. That's good. That's good to know. Okay. So um, our show is just about over. Uh, I think we only have about a minute left. And... uh, Oops, we have 90 seconds left. <laughs> so, listen, Monday through Friday we're here, okay? And uh, come okay. on, any night you want to. We always need panelists, and you'd make a wonderful panelist. You know, you've been through so much, and you have so much experience, and you're just so, so smart, okay? Um, come on any night that you want. And um, thank you so much for being our guest. This was a wonderful show, and I think you're a thank wonderful you for the guy. Opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so I have to wrap this up, everyone. I thank the panel for being on. We had a great show. And um, good night, God bless, and we will be back on Monday. Good night now. Love Talk Radio.